0: Or cover everything I have to say, but it's the same subject basically. I touched on this last week <clears throat> in passing uh, with the thought that forgiveness and mercy from God is not automatic to us. Now, I know that we would all like to think and may have thought in our own minds and ego and vanity or whatever that any time we ask God to forgive us he does but that is not always the case and we need to understand that forgiveness and mercy from God are given on a contingency basis and these become critical issues in more ways than one I say critical issues because when we are critical of others uh, then it becomes a critical spiritual issue now if if forgiveness and mercy are not extended automatically to you and I when we get on our knees and pray we may, we, we may feel that we are praying a very deep prayer of repentance before God and asking for his mercy and we really want it, we really need it we feel that we've sinned in some way so we pray for forgiveness but there are contingencies involved
1: now I want to start with a very positive statement
0: and that is in Matthew 5 very positive here. Uh, Christ is beginning a very, very important sermon, or they call it a sermon, a teaching anyway, where he sat down and uh, talked to his disciples. He gives them the weighty matters of the law in this five, six, uh, this three chapter uh, sermon or teaching that he gave them at that particular time. And he talks about being poor in spirit in verse 3, being mournful, uh, being meek, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, all things that we would feel are very, very important in a Christian's life. He mentions in verse 8 being pure in heart, being peacemakers in verse 9, and how if we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, that goes on the ledger of good for us as well. I skipped over verse 7, where he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So he starts this out in a very, very positive way, giving these weighty matters of the law and of our conduct uh, first place and shows that there is a great reward for having these qualities that he names that will be in the kingdom of God, that will inherit the earth, all of those rewards that are promised through the Bible He reiterates here or iterates here as he starts out and shows that they are very, very important and that if we are merciful we will obtain mercy. Now I could probably stop right there uh, with that statement and we would all be merciful, become merciful and we would obtain mercy. Unfortunately with human beings it is not that easy. And Christ went on and explained what he had in mind. Gave some examples and then he made some very strong negative statements a little later on. Now I don't intend today to give an attack sermon on those who attack others. My job is to gently lead you to a right relationship with God and with man. To point out areas where we can improve our relationship with God and improve our relationship with man so that we can obtain the rewards that Christ is talking about here as he begins this teaching. Now let's go to chapter 5, verse 21. I say to you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause, without a real reason, shall be in danger of the judgment, and that is judgment of God. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, or you fool, shall be in danger danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, you fool, shall be in danger of eternal fire. Gehenna. So there are degrees of anger shown here. Uh, There can be anger, that is righteous anger. There are scriptures to show that. But I would judge that most of our anger is not Justified most of our anger comes from our own pride our vanity our ego uh, our judgment of others uh, looking down on their conduct their approach their attitude whatever it might be very little of our anger is truly justified before God now let's notice chapter 6 and verse 12 here is the sample prayer that he gives tells us pray after this manner, this pattern, this example, this way. Let's start in verse 9. After this manner therefore pray you, our Father, we pray directly to the Father, which is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And he gives the very basic elements here of prayer, the important parts of prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Very, very important thing to hallow God's name, to pray for his kingdom to come. How could you find anything more important than that? Give us this day our daily bread that he'd take care of us on a day by day basis. Not necessarily that we become greatly rich but that our daily needs are taken care of. Very, very basic thing that we ask of God. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So he even in this model prayer, gives a contingency that we are to pray that he forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors, those who might owe money, those who might owe emotion, those who might owe us whatever debt they might owe. There are all kinds of debts that people might have toward us and we might have toward them. So he makes this part of it and it's a very basic prayer again. Uh, contingency, a contingency basis lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one for yours is the kingdom the power and the glory forever amen the basic outline there to give God glory to pray for his benefits and blessings to forgive us as we forgive others now immediately after he finishes the amen here he explains further what he meant in verse 12 because there could be some question. He explains, without any ado, right into it, very directly, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, if I have not forgiven other people For any trespass against me, and I go and ask for forgiveness of my sins before God, it's telling us right here that God will not forgive my sins or yours if we are still in an attitude or have not given deliverance and forgiveness to other people. If we in our minds and hearts have not remitted their sins, ours will not be remitted. I don't see any way to argue with this I don't see any way to get around it it's just a very plain statement of scripture it is a major part of the model prayer and he explains right after exactly what he meant lest we have a problem so he does not allow us to harbor someone else's wrongs he doesn't allow us to hold on to them
1: He demands
0: before he will forgive us that we forgive others who might have offended or trespassed against us. This is a salvational issue. If our sins are not forgiven, we will not be in the kingdom of God. This is a very, very important issue. We will not be given mercy unless we extend mercy to other people. Let's go on. He doesn't turn loose of this. Chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not or condemn not that you be not condemned. So you can say judge, you can say condemned, you could use either word there, probably okay. But verse 2 is critical here. Whichever definition you use, judge not, condemn not, whatever. For with what judgment or condemnation you judge or condemn you shall be judged and with what measure you meet it it shall be measured to you again God says here Christ says in so many words that whatever judgment we put upon others whatever our attitude toward others let's make this plain whatever our attitude toward others is going to be God's attitude toward us Now, that's scary, isn't it? Maybe I see a fault or a problem in someone, and maybe it's a real problem. And I decide to have a critical, condemnative, judgmental attitude toward that person. God is going to echo that attitude right back to me. There is no escaping it. There is no getting around it. He tells us that the way we treat others is exactly how he is going to treat us. Do you want God to be in a critical attitude toward you? I don't want him to be critical toward me. And yet, I find that I can be critical toward people. It comes so easily, like Bill was saying, it's not hard to do. It's very easy to judge others and to have a... uh, well many different ways bad attitude toward them uh, look down upon them to have disgust because of what I see or think I see them doing in some cases it is true what I see it might be wrong what I see <clears throat> but if I have a judgmental or critical attitude toward that person God says he will look upon me in exactly the same way Let's continue, verse 3. And why behold you the mote that is in your brother's eye, but consider not the beam that is in your own eye? Usually our problems are a whole lot bigger than the problem we're condemning the other person for. I.e., if we are self-righteous, if we put ourselves above that person and to judge or condemn or put them down, we have to put ourselves in that posture. Then if we are being unmerciful, we're being unloving and unkind our problem our spiritual problem our weightier problem is bigger than whatever their problem might be whether it's drinking some juice that has a coccinell bug in it or, or whatever we pick at each other over things that are probably less of a problem than our attitude is that's what he's trying to say here That the moat, the speck the, the stuff in his eye is a lot smaller than the beam that is on our own eye and he's saying this in the context of how we look upon other people and how we measure out judgment to them is exactly how he will look upon us and measure out judgment to us so if we are in a condemnative attitude we have a bigger problem than that person that we're condemning whatever their problem might be, we had better be very, very careful. He says, verse 5, You hypocrite! First cast out the beam out of your own eye, and then shall you see clearly to cast out the mote out of your brother's eye. It's not that our brother might not have a problem. He very well may have a problem. In fact, I'm sure he does have a problem. We all have problems. There's not one of us that does not have problems And probably some fairly serious problems whether it be attitude or whatever we might not be blatantly breaking we think any one of the Ten Commandments but if we are not showing loving kindness and gentleness and mercy toward other people then we are breaking the Second Commandment he summarized it as love toward God and love toward man and if we are not showing kindness, gentleness, love and mercy toward man then we're breaking the first commandment and we're judging another man's servant God's servant in this case and we're not having the right attitude and relationship to God either because he said his the relationship we have with him is contingent upon our relationship with our brethren now if you have problems in your relationship with the brethren you automatically have problems in your relationship with God I don't think that should be too hard to follow. It might be hard to accept because we might think our relationship with God is pretty good and we talk with him and we walk with him. But if we have problems getting along with other people, then there's something wrong with us, not always the other person. It's not always his fault. If we are in a critical judgmental attitude, we have a problem somewhere, someway, somehow. We'll get into that a little more as we go on. Chapter 7, verse 21. Here's a big contingency. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. And what is the will of our Father? That we show love toward God and love toward man. That summarizes all this instruction in this whole book. It all hinges on that. The Law and the Prophets hinge on that. Everything hinges on that. That is a summary of the whole teaching of the Bible. So if we have those relationships right, then we are pleasing our Father, doing His will, and we can be in His kingdom. But if we do not treat people as we would treat God, then we have a serious spiritual problem and it will preclude our existence or our acceptance into the kingdom of God. So his will includes our relationship with our brothers and sisters. Notice Matthew 23, verse 23. The sermon that talked quite a bit about the Pharisees and their attitude. But I want to go back here to chapter 23, verse 23. Woe! Have you read the woes back in the book of Revelation? And how God is going to pronounce woes on this world? Well, when Christ says woe, He means woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and hannis and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. And one of the three that he mentions is mercy. I won't get into all three of them now, but he gives three examples of weightier matters. And mercy is one of the weightier matters that he picks out to use against these people. He says you should have done these small things We should be tithing. We should be taking care of the small things. We're faithful in little, we're faithful in much. That is certainly a right principle and one that Christ himself used. But he said, don't get so busy with all these little things, especially the little things that other people might be doing that bother you and forget something as weighty, as heavy as mercy. Mercy is a very heavy thing. It is a salvational issue that we show mercy on others. Now we talk about a lot of speculative things. We say, well, that's not a salvational issue. Just like the last three sermons I gave about the new heavens and new earth. They are not necessarily a salvational issue. Nice to know. if you under, we, It's nice to understand what God is doing, what the future holds. Uh, everyone might not totally agree with everything I said, it's not a salvational issue in that sense that is unless you get in a very condemnative negative attitude toward me because of the way I looked at those scriptures if you don't forgive me for expressing my view and reading the scriptures as I see them to be then you could have a very weighty serious problem if you simply disagree have a different view that's okay it's not salvational but mercy is a weighty matter And it is salvational. If we don't show mercy to others, we do not show forgiveness to others, we will receive how much? None. Or, as he said, exactly the same amount that we give to others. That is really rather scary when you think about our human nature and how we do react to our fellow man. We say we love God, but if we don't treat our fellow man in the ways that God prescribes here he says our relationship with him is the same as it is with them I hope you listen to the sermonette and I hope you're listening now and I hope you're not condemning me uh, for jumping on you about a problem that I might think you might have because what I'm trying to do is show that we will be judged just as we judge others. Now, I personally prefer a lot of forgiveness, a lot of mercy, a lot of kindness, uh, a lot of, uh, well, not necessarily pity, maybe that's the wrong word. Uh, I prefer a lot of slack in the rope. People give me an opportunity and a chance to grow, to overcome and not condemn me for
1: what I am today,
0: but give me opportunity to be something else tomorrow maybe do better tomorrow than I did today I like all kinds of mercy and kindness and I'm sure you do too but sometimes we have difficulty extending that to everyone else so it's easy for us to criticize to put down to condemn to castigate to talk about to backbite things in other people that are far less weighty than our own level of mercy or lack thereof. Sometimes we get all excited about smaller things and we forget this weighty thing that is, hold, that is over our head like a Damocles sword because God says he'll judge us exactly as we judge others. There's no getting around that. He didn't mince any words. He was very direct about it, and he was very plain and pointed about it. Uh, there's There's no opportunity to get around his statement we will be judged as we judge James 2 verse 13 James picks up on what Christ said here in James two thirteen, for he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy and mercy rejoices against judgment so he says he will judge us without mercy if we have showed no mercy just a different way of saying the exact same thing And then he says that mercy rejoices against judgment or it glories in my margin against judgment. That mercy is so much greater than condemnation. God is a merciful God. He wants to extend mercy to us, but he says that it is contingent upon our showing mercy to others. Why would he give us mercy? I mean, Think about it. Why would he give you mercy if you don't show mercy? It just doesn't make sense. Let's go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. At the same time came the disciples to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They liked comparisons. And Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, except you be converted and become as little children you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven now we're not to become a little child in terms of being a terrible two or ferocious four or whatever they want to use he uses the example of humility here to become as a little humble as a little child is humble when they're in a good attitude, when they are willing to listen, when they're willing to be loved. That's the type of little child he wants us to be like, to truly be humble. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. So for us to offend with our attitude towards someone else to be unforgiving, not to cut them any slack, not to give them any opportunity, but to be condemnative of things that they are thinking, saying, or doing puts us in danger, in God's estimation, in Jesus Christ's estimation, of having a millstone hanged about our neck and being thrown into the sea. That's what he thinks of pride and vanity and ego and self-righteousness as opposed to humility. Woe to the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. It's going to happen, and human nature's here, Satan's here, but woe to the man by whom the offense comes. And then he talks about uh, the relative importance spiritually of a hand or a foot compared to the weightier matters of the law. That whatever is wrong in our attitude has to be cut out, excised, gotten rid of. Verse 10, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. So each one of us is a little one, just like that little child. We are little children before God, and he takes very great care for his little children. And is he ever upset and concerned when we offend those little children that he's leading to salvation? Whoever you might have an attitude toward, for whatever it is that they are doing, God takes very careful note of your attitude. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. How think you, if a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains and seek that one which has gone astray? And if so be that he find it, truly I say to you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety-nine which went not astray. So he's very, very concerned about one going astray. And if we cause that person to be led astray or to go astray because of our attitude toward them, any offense that they might pick up because of a condemnative, critical attitude we have toward them, uh, he says we'll answer for that. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And if we do anything that causes them, like a little sheep, to be wet or cold or naked or blind, we don't take care of them. Instead, we say, you're naked, you're cold, you're wet, you're blind. You have problems. Uh, this is your problem. Now, usually, we don't even take the problem to the person. We talk about them behind their back to someone else, and then it gets back to them anyway. So even though we might not offend directly because we don't like to confrontation, we make sure the message gets to them and we're the one causing the offense anyhow and usually it gets back to them who it was that said what they said about them anyway. Not always, but in most cases, eventually it will. Verse 15, Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against you not against someone else, but against you. Notice. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is Christ's direct instruction to us. If someone sins against us or trespasses against us, creates a problem for us or against us, we are not to tell anyone else. We are to go to that person alone. I wonder how many times that has been lived up to in the church of God. We'll tell everybody but the person. Or if we do tell the person, so often it's in anger and put-down and condemnation as opposed to try to gain our brother. But the whole object of this passage here is gaining your brother, not putting him out of the church, not disfellowshipping him, not getting rid of him because of whatever sin he might have. The whole object of this is to gain the brother. Notice the context of chapter 18. It's talking about a little child and humility and not offending anyone, being very, very careful how we approach them, lest they be offended and, and it be held to our account. That's the whole context here. And God says you're supposed to keep this problem as small as possible. But how often do we say it to someone, to someone else, to someone else, we become a tail bearer and a backbiter and God does not speak kindly toward those who are in that mode. I can show you a lot of scriptures on that and don't have time to today. I have in past sermons. Those things are not looked upon kindly by God. He tells us, he gives us a very very narrow window of opportunity to help gain our brother. And that is go and tell him his trespass against us not against God necessarily not against someone else but his trespass specifically against us this passage here from verse 15 on down to verse 20 has been misused and abused an awful lot and it has not been applied in the way that it is written very often it is used as a principle or a teeing off point sometimes and it is not followed in the order in which it is given and in the way which it is directed and in the attitude which he precedes giving it by explaining uh, the attitude we should have toward each other. Before he gives us this opportunity to go and correct our brother, he wants to be sure our attitude is absolutely right and that we are not going to offend anyone or put them down lest a millstone be tied around our neck and we be thrown into the sea. He he precedes his instruction in verse fifteen and to twenty with that instruction, and we need to keep that very much in mind. Our object is to help our brother, to strengthen our brother, not to put him out. But this is a passage that's been used. Well, we got a process here. We got to follow. So let's follow this process and get rid of this person. That isn't the object at all of the scripture. He tells us to keep it very narrow. If he trespassed against you. Go and tell him his fault, his trespass between you and him alone. You don't tell it to your best friend. You don't tell it to the preacher. You don't tell it to anybody but him alone. Are we, can, do, do we get this? Can we follow this? Is this too complicated for us? If he shall hear you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, then take you one or two more, not 13, but one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. In other words, we're trying to find a solution to this problem. Sometimes my word against your word, your word against my word, is not sufficient. Sometimes we have to take one or two witnesses. Now, what is a witness? A witness is someone who saw what happened otherwise what you've done is you've rounded up people you've told them your side of the story now you've got them on your side they're probably your friends or someone you have an affinity for and you tell them and now you go confront this person with them on your side in other words ganging up on them that isn't the correct attitude or approach either Take one or two witnesses that know about, that have seen this, not just heard your side of it, because you can have lying and false witnesses, or witnesses that simply don't know anything except your side of the story. They may not be deliberately lying, but if you are, or you don't have your facts right, then they aren't a good witness against the person. This is something that has to be done very, very carefully. And sometimes our perception of what someone has done to us is not their perception of what happened at all. And they might have two or three witnesses on their side who perceive the whole thing completely different than you and your witnesses do. So this is something that has to be done very, very carefully. You are not always necessarily right. You may have wronged that person as much as they wronged you. Ever think of that? Because we all look at things through our own eyes, and our own eyes tend to judge us as righteous and correct and right. Self righteousness is nothing more than the self being judged as being right. I am always right, therefore, you must be wrong. Self righteousness is not that hard to define, self being right. so bring two or three witnesses that every word may be established let's get to the truth here as opposed to just accusing someone of what we think they might be doing and if he shall neglect to hear them tell it to the church then it goes to a broader uh, group but if he neglect to hear the church let him be under you as a heathen and a publican that's what Paul did with the matter of incest there in 1 Corinthians 5 and he made a judgment on that so the ministry comes into this as well Uh, he told them what they should do under those circumstances he wasn't there but he told them what they should do and then when he he did that then the person repented then they didn't want to accept him back then he had to really jump on them because they weren't being forgiving and loving and kind and gentle So once they condemned the person, he was once and for all condemned. He was pigeonholed. There's a problem, the person, instead of showing the love and mercy and forgiveness that they should have when he did truly repent. Now they put themselves in the position of God not forgiving them or showing them any mercy when they would not show mercy and forgiveness to this person who at that point had repented and Paul made the judgment that the person had repented. It was not a judgment that they as a whole made. He had to tell them what to do because they didn't do the right thing on their own. Truly I say to you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Now this is translated the same way as it is in 16:18, or should be. Whatever you bind on earth had well better be that which is bound in heaven whatever you shall loose on earth had better well be that which is loosed in heaven you'd better make righteous judgments in other other words otherwise you might have that millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the ocean or the lake of fire ultimately we had better be very very careful the judgments we make we had better use this as a tool This passage is a tool to gain our brother not to condemn or get rid of someone because we see a sin in them. So he says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name there am I in the midst of them. So he will be in our midst if we gather in the right attitude. But if we have an unforgiving, unmerciful attitude then he's going to have an unforgiving, unmerciful attitude toward us. And not only will we not have gained our brother, we will not have gained our relationship with God either. Well, this automatically raises questions, doesn't it? And guess who was the first one to come up with a question based on what Christ had just explained? Verse 21, Then Peter came Peter, or Capus, to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? <laughs> you know, how many times do I have to go through this, Lord? Till seven times? Let's say someone sins against me, an absolute act of sin against me. Shall I forgive him as many as seven times? Peter thought this was truly stretching it. To forgive someone seven times was almost beyond his comprehension. Jesus said to him, I say not to you until seven times, but until 70 times seven. 490 times. In other words, into infinity, it is mercy and forgiveness should never be denied. If that person comes and says, I'm sorry, I trespassed against you again, it's very unlikely that someone is going to do the same thing to you 490 times. I won't say it's beyond human capability, perhaps it is a possibility. But if they are truly repenting, I doubt they would do it that many times. But God says that our mercy needs to be unlimited. That that is a child of God that we're dealing with. It's one of his called ones. It's one of his chosen that he may be choosing to be a part of his kingdom and the bride of Jesus Christ when he returns to this earth. So we need to be very, very careful. How many times would you like to be forgiven if you sinned against God? Seven times? Four hundred and ninety times? How about infinity? I prefer that. Because I personally have sinned against God a whole lot more than 490 times. How many times have you sinned against God? Two, three, five? I've sinned against him thousands of times. I doubt there's a day in my life I have not sinned against God. In thought or in action, or not doing something I should do, I haven't shown perfect love toward God probably one day in my life. I I think it's a very, very slim chance that that has ever occurred. So it's been far more than 490 times. And I hope he's forgiven me. I've sinned against and trespassed against a lot of people in my life, some of them over and over again. And I've had people trespass against me I must forgive them. I must not hold grudges or have a critical, judgmental attitude toward them. One that comes to mind very much here is our attitude toward the ministry. Yes, the ministry used us. It abused us. It used power in a wrong way and worldwide. And some of us have some very, very black, nasty attitudes toward some of those men. How do I know whether they've repented or not? How do I know whether they've straightened that out, whether they're not doing it again? Am I going to hold a grudge? Am I going to bear animosity? Am I going to say they're unfaithful, they're no good, they're forever condemned, they're unqualified? Am I going to make that judgment? What if God says to me, because of your attitude toward them, you're unqualified? You can't be part of my kingdom. We need to think very, very deeply about the attitudes we might have toward our parents, our siblings, uh, people at work, uh, the ministry, brothers and sisters in the church, people who have trespassed against us. Some of those things are very, very hard to forgive, aren't they? Some of them go so deep emotionally in our hearts and minds and beings, they're almost impossible to give up and get past. We have to do it. We simply have to do it. God holds us responsible for our attitude toward those people. There's no getting around it. Therefore, all right, here's something that is an adjunct to what he has just explained. Forgive them at least 490 times. In other words, into infinity. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king. He says, what I'm about to tell you is a result of this question that you just asked and what I have just explained to you which would take account of his servants and when he had begun to reckon I'm in verse 24 one was brought to him which owed him ten thousand talents but for as much as he had not to pay his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made the servant therefore fell down and worshipped him saying Lord have patience with me and I will pay you all then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and actually forgave him the debt didn't even require it to be paid but forgave it but the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants which owed him a hundred pence almost nothing by comparisons and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying pay me that you owe and his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him saying have patience with me and I will pay you all a hundred pence Almost nothing. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. Now, fine chance he'll have paying the debt sitting in prison. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their lord all that was done. Then his lord, after they had called him, said to him, Oh, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you desired me to. Should not you also have had compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had pity on you? I mean, the sin, the debt, the trespass was not nearly so great, not even a comparison. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due to him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also to you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. God is going to be like that hard-hearted one and he is going to require every bit, every trespass will have to be answered to if we do not from the heart forgive those who trespass against us that is a tough saying, this is a tough parable How hard it is for us to have an attitude of forgiveness, of meekness, of kindness, of gentleness, of love toward our brother when they trespass against us or do something that hurts us in some way. Boy, do we have an attitude to get over. Oh, it is so hard for us to get past something. Well, God says if you don't do it, you won't get past his judgment either. And it's not just saying, I forgive you. I forgive you. Yep. No, it's from the heart. Where we inside say, I forgive. And mean it. This is a pretty hard saying. Who can know it? Let's go to Luke 6. Luke 6, verse 37. Luke 6, verse 37. <clears throat> Repeating the same thing he said in Matthew Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. So he uses judgment and condemnation both. Forgive, and you shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given to you, good measure, pressed down, and shaken together. Uh, in other words, like a bag of wheat. You shake the bag, and it goes down. It it settles. You shake it again, it settles some more. Then you can put more in. And you shake it some more, and the more you shake it, the, the more it settles together, all the kernels, and you can get more in the bag. That's what he's saying to us. If we forgive, then he'll give us good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet, with all it shall be measured to you again. So he puts it in little different words here and I think it's more dramatic here the way that Luke explains it better so, more so than the way Matthew put it. Matthew was a little stronger uh, in the way he put it but here he shows the positive side of it and that if we are willing to forgive and forget and move on then God will bless us full and running over. Now, in some cases we might say, well, all we want to do is put sin out of the camp. We think of Achan and his one sin that caused great misery and a plague upon Israel. Well, that's true, and it's honorable, and I appreciate the fact that we all want to get all sin out of all of us, and that is a wonderful goal, It's something we need to do. But we cannot forget the personal responsibility first and foremost. That has to come first. Example is the best way. Christ came and lived a perfect example, a pattern that we should follow in our lives. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to set a pattern and an example that we should live just like he lived. That he would willing to say, your sins be forgiven you, over and over and over again to people. He did not want to hold them. That was not his desire. A lot of people, I, I guess, like to hold grudges. It gives them something to pity themselves about. It gives them something to look down upon others about, so that they can feel better about themselves in some way. It's a twist of human nature, and it's carnal, it's not right, but they do it anyway. But to whatever degree of anger we show toward others, it can be mild, it can be strong, is the amount of anger that will be shown to us in God's judgment of us. However critical we are to others, God will criticize us in turn. However unmerciful we are, we will receive the same amount of mercy. Let's go to Matthew 25 and tie this absolutely to our relationship with and our conduct toward others. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all peoples, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. It's a process. It takes time. It's not something he does in five minutes, but over a lifetime in the millennium, or the great white throne judgment. It's just the beginning of the judgment on those who are still physical. But that isn't the part I want to get to. Verse 34 begins that. Then shall the king say to them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we you hungry? And fed you, or thirsty, and gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger, and took you in, or naked, and clothed you? It's easy to put down someone who's homeless, clothless, foodless, turn our hearts from them. When did we see you sick, or in prison, and came to you? The king shall answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, inasmuch as you have done it, unto one of the very least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me." So he takes our conduct toward other people in absolute direct measure and how he will conduct himself toward us. And he takes those things that we do toward any little one as being done to him. We've seen whether it be for good or now he will explain as for bad. Then he shall say also to them on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you took me not in, naked and you clothed me not, sick and in prison, and you visited me not.
1: Then shall they also
0: answer him, saying, These are the ones being condemned. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? When did you know when did we not give you the care that you are talking about then shall he answer them saying truly I say to you inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these you did it not to me not the important of these but the least of these and these shall go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into life eternal so the righteousness and the unrighteousness are judged here based on how we treat the least of our brethren so our salvation is not just in our so-called relationship with God. He judges our relationship with Him based on how we treat others. Maybe we need to look in the mirror once in a while and say, God is looking at me just like I'm looking at so-and-so on the third row, second seat over, or sixth row, fourth seat over. God is going to judge me exactly as I judge that person. That's scary. But it's true it's inescapable these are very very plain clear salvational issues now let's move on Uh, what should the attitude be remember the Pharisee who said I fast twice in the week I give alms I pray every day I study my Bible every day Uh, I don't uh, use Grecian formula on my hair I do everything that I should therefore I must be a candidate for the kingdom of God Christ condemned that attitude of the Pharisee he said I I like the publican a whole lot better he's the one that won't even look up that beats his hands on his breast and says God be merciful to me a sinner that's the attitude God is looking at see the Pharisee compares himself to other people And he comes out pretty good in that comparison. But Paul tells us that it is not wise to compare ourselves among ourselves. But compare ourselves to God and plead for mercy because God is a lot kinder toward people than you and I tend to be. We tend to be like a bunch of chickens picking at each other's behinds until we peck the whole behind out and Christ didn't put it in quite those terms but he said the same thing there we might as well have a millstone tied around our neck and be thrown into the sea. In other words humility leaves no room for a critical attitude. There is no room for a critical attitude towards someone else in humility. That is a product of pride. Paul tells us to esteem others better than ourselves so much for self-esteem but we like to esteem ourselves highly and we like to find faults with other people we like to point out those faults to either that person or someone else about that person that's human nature it's satanic nature it is not the nature of God to do that pride is often critical it sees itself in some way or some manner above the one that they are criticizing Sometimes we just tend to wear a halo a little too tight. We need to fold our wings and put them in a box and get the beam out of our own eye before we try to get the moat out of someone else's because our spiritual problem of not forgiving and being unmerciful and being unkind is a much, much more serious problem than whatever it is we are picking at them about in most cases. Now listen carefully to this. There is something fundamentally wrong with anyone who tends to be upset, frustrated, impatient, fault-finding, or angry with others. That person has a serious spiritual problem. Mercy is a weighty matter. It is a heavy spiritual principle. Patience is a fruit of God's Holy Spirit. Impatience and anger and uh, frustration, fault-finding with others, being upset with others, is not a godly trait. Those things are the opposites of mercy, forgiveness. They're antonyms. If you are angry, and anger again is by degrees, you can be mildly angry, somewhat upset, or you can be very, very angry to the point of popping a blood vessel or shooting someone. They're all varying degrees of anger. Some people roll along with a light anger against the world and against their parents and against their siblings. Others are just mad at the world. There's a lot of different degrees of anger. But God tells us not to even be around an angry person. doesn't define the degree God wants us to be meek and humble and loving and kind and gentle. If there is anger in a person, there is a reason for it. I think we've already read Matthew uh, 5, verse 21, have we not? Maybe I should review it here. Well, that's where it talks about the different degrees of anger, about how how the, the angrier we are the more in jeopardy we place ourselves in God's judgment. There's a reason you are angry. That you get angry at this one, you get angry at that one. If there's anger inside you, whatever degree it is, you need to find it. Find out. Why are you angry? What is the cause of that anger? It didn't come from God. I'll guarantee you that. You didn't get it from Him. Ask yourself, From the depths of your personality, look into your past. Find out who initially made you angry. Was it the way your parents treated you? Was it the way you were treated at school or by the ministry or the world in general? A business partner, a wife, a mate? Who made you angry? When did it start? Where did it come from? Try to to figure out why you tend to be judgmental, critical, upset, frustrated, impatient, or angry. Where did it stem from? Is it just your plain human nature? Number two, why do you take it out on others? Why do you not go to that person who caused the anger within you because your parents didn't treat you right or your allowance wasn't big enough or they called you names or told you how worthless you were or whatever. We won't get into Freudianism here. (laughs) But we do need to determine and recognize where that anger comes from. Be honest with yourself. Why, Why do you have that approach and attitude toward people you see and know and meet? Why do you get critical of them, judgmental of them? Is there someone in the past you haven't forgiven and you still carry that anger? and carry it out on others whether it be mild or strong we need to be very careful about judging another man's servant especially God's servants those who are trying to serve God what's the solution to the anger the frustration the impatience that you feel toward other people we have to take responsibility for our attitude yes maybe you were mistreated by your parents maybe you, they abused you, misused you in whatever way mentally, emotionally, sexually, physically maybe you didn't have everything the Joneses kids had I don't know we all have different reasons for the level of anger that we might have but who are you hurting? are you hurting the parent who might be dead? Or are you hurting the parent who might be alive in another city or down the block? you're not really hurting them you're hurting you you're hurting your relationship with God and his judgment of you. And you're making yourself stew and live in misery because you look out of your eyes at someone else and you see their imperfections and they make you frustrated. Are you frustrating them? Well, maybe if they know about it, you frustrate them to some degree because when they see you coming, you say, Oh boy, I wonder what I did now. Or, I wonder what somebody else did now. We're about to hear about it. But you're mostly frustrating yourself. It's inside your own head and emotional makeup that you're creating the problem. You've got to recognize why that is, why you have that problem, and then take responsibility for it. I can't change what my parents did to me or against me or for me 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. But there are people who still carry that anger against father or mother. And they will not take responsibility for their own lives. They blame someone else and continue in their misery, making themselves miserable. No, you have to take responsibility for what is in your head. It doesn't matter who put it there, how it got there. You simply have to take responsibility for it and do something about it. Get rid of it. Forgive whoever it was that did that to you. Turn them loose. Don't hold them responsible anymore. Take responsibility for what goes on in your own head because most of the frustration you're creating is for yourself, not for them. God wants you to live in peace and joy and happiness and love. But if you retain anger and frustration and impatience toward others, you are robbing yourself of that you're compounding the problem someone else might have done something to you but you're doing something even worse to yourself by not getting over it get over it get a life to use a couple of common expressions deal with it comes with the territory we all have had things done wrong to us why live in anger for the rest of your life why should you pay the penalty for what they did to you let God judge them forgive them and God will forgive you and we can all live happily thereafter. we must take responsibility for our own lives you can't change what happened in the past you can forgive it and move on Proverbs 29 verse 22 Proverbs 29 verse 22 I don't know whether that was somebody clicking back in or somebody clicking back out but uh, I heard the beat that's okay maybe this is too strong but I'll tell you our eternal life is dependent upon it Proverbs 29 verse 22 an angry man stirs up strife and a furious man abounds in transgression it just compounds the problem and when we're frustrated impatient and angry with others then it stirs up strife and that's not good either are they a kettle? just because you were a pot? Think about that one. Can the pot call the kettle black, just turning it around a little bit? Why should you transfer your anger about whatever has happened to you and the unfair shake you've got in life to someone else? Sometimes, I guess, we just hate or despise ourselves isn't something someone else did to us, but we say our own faults and our own lacks and we want to share the wealth. It's the same principle as the AIDS patients there in Africa who will rape and pillage through a city block, raping every girl, every woman to share the wealth. They're mad at the world because of what has happened to them, so they want to spread it to someone else. I don't know. That's, that's another element of it. We might not be quite that bad about it, but we still like to spread our attitude if we are upset or impatient. Why do we not forgive that minister who abused us on our knees before God, but no, we want to share the wealth We want to spread how bad he was to everybody else or how bad our parent was and how they mistreated us and abused us. Poor me. Let's all have a pity party and get out our little record player and play Pity Me. Understand that putting others down does not lift us up in anyone else's mind or in God's mind. It's only in our own mind that we make the comparison and come out on the best side of the thing. But it also causes us to live in misery because we cannot solve that person's problem for them. The only chance you have is to solve your own problems, to get the beam out of your own eye. Let's notice Proverbs 6. We're back here. Proverbs 6, verse 16. These six things does the eternal hate. God absolutely hates and despises. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look. You ever notice people have proud looks? A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. Heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift and running to mischief or sin, a false witness that speaks lies, and he that sows discord among brethren. Talking about others, putting others down, pointing out their errors, their sins, their faults, their trespasses, their inadequacies, is something that God hates and puts in the same. Category is a proud look, murder, wicked thoughts. It's the same thing to God, sowing discord among the brethren. And when we backbite, put down, talk about, enumerate the sins of other people, then we are sowing discord among the brethren. It causes hurts, a whisper separates chief friends, another proverb says, It causes discard, hurt, anguish, anxiety, and everything else. We hate to be talked about, but boy do we love to give a little succulent story about someone else. That is human nature. Now, if your name comes up in a conversation, if my name comes up in a conversation, what is the image that comes to people's minds? Put your name in there. Fill in the blank. Whatever your name is, I have to put my name in, Daryl Henson. What comes to people's mind when my name comes up? I shudder to even put my name in there because I know a lot of people would love to kill me. I know some people who would love to see me hurt. Some that like to see me go into the lake of fire. Some who say I'm not qualified to do this or that. Others have a milder form of dislike for me. But put your name in there. What comes to people's mind when they think of you? Do they think, man, there is a merciful, kind, forgiving, loving, humble, gentle person. There's someone you just can't help but love. Is that what comes to their mind when they think of you? Better watch out for this one. It'll bite you. do we realize that Jesus Christ died for whoever we are. And he died for whoever we are despising, putting down, telling tales about, or enumerating the sins of. And he hid their sins in his blood. And he will hide our sins in his blood if we are forgiving and merciful toward others. But he will not. He will not let his blood cover our sins if we do not forgive and be merciful to others. It is the glory of God, the glory of God, to conceal a matter. It is the glory of human nature to reveal a matter. Proverbs eleven thirteen, Proverbs eleven thirteen. A talebearer reveals secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit conceals the matter. Would you like to be known as a talebearer, or one who is of a faithful spirit, who conceals things? It is the glory of God to hide a sin or a trespass or something that is wrong. It is the glory of God not to let it be known. That's why he tells us, go to those those who trespass against you alone, between you and him alone, so that it doesn't spread to other people and create problems for others. God does not give brownie points for pointing out other people's faults. He just doesn't do it. Am I saying anything new? I'm saying things that I think we all probably to one degree or another understand. Our problem is living it. Our problem is living up to it. Billy said that in the sermonette. He realizes that he has these things wrong in his heart and mind sometimes. But boy, is it ever hard to control these things. Our human nature just pines away to find fault with other people. Galatians 5. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Well, let's see. Let's go to verse 14 of Galatians 5. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't want your faults spread around the neighborhood, don't spread his around the neighborhood. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. When when people think of us, it would be nice if they thought of us that way. There is a person that is full of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of gentleness, goodness, faith meekness and temperance we'd all like to be thought of that way there simply is no room in the fruit of God's spirit for fault finding, for impatience for anger in its various forms there's just not room for that humility and meekness do not allow that, human nature does, you can read the works of the flesh up here that comes naturally All right, let's close this out now. Let's go back to John 13. John 13. And read verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. There's a weighty matter. If we don't have love one to another, but we're picking at one another... And that shows men that we are not disciples of Christ we're not following his pattern John 15 verse 12 chapter 15 verse 12 this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you greater love has no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends Jesus Christ calls us friends well he goes on to say so you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you henceforth I call you not servants for the servant knows not what his Lord does But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known to you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, good fruit obviously, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name he may give it you. If we please him and do those things, keep his commandments, then he'll be pleased with us. Christ is the most merciful of all. He is our pattern. He potentially took on the sins of all people. Not yours or mine if we don't forgive others their trespasses against us. I say potentially he gave himself for all people's sins. But he said he will not forgive the sins of those who do not forgive others. He will show us the same amount of patience we show with others. He will show the same amount of love to us that we show toward others we get what we receive exactly his judgment will be exactly on us as we judge others if we want kindness and mercy and gentleness from him then we must be kind gentle and merciful toward others he even has a plan for saving those who died in their sins known as the second resurrection the rest of the dead live not until the thousand years were finished they come up in a resurrection then and they will have an opportunity learn his ways and to treat other people as they would want to be treated and if they do so they will be given life eternal like we will if we treat people correctly now because salvation or judgment is now upon you and me so Jesus Christ set the finest example of all he is willing or was willing that his blood be shed and he's willing that it cover every person's sin on earth if we We'll live according to his commandments and please him and do his will and treat other people the way we want to be treated. It's all that simple. It's just very hard to live up to it. It's my job not to condemn you but to help you toward salvation. To help you get past any anger and frustration and impatience that you tend to have with other people and become humble, patient, and merciful. That is a big part of my job is to treat you with kindness and gentleness and patience and mercy and love. And those are the fruit of God's Spirit that I want to give to you and want to serve you with. I'm not giving this sermon to condemn or put down. I'm showing you how God judges and how God wants us to be so that we can be judged in the way that we really do want to be judged. And how we treat each other is exactly the measure will be needed to us. So, this isn't to chew you out, it isn't to put you down, it's to remind, to educate, and to show you a way whereby you might be judged with love and kindness, gentleness, patience, and mercy. In the sermon.